Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching a message from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, and the message is called, We Are Salt and Light. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day and for your word that has been read over us. And now I pray that the words of my mouth, Lord, would just be a vessel uh, to to convey truth from your scriptures. Let us all hear what you would have to say to this church. Uh, Strengthen us, convict us of sin, point us to Jesus. Lord, may this time and the attention that we give to hearing your word be a part of our worship you are worthy of it, Lord. And we need you. We need you. We need to learn of you. We need to continue to grow. So help us to grow today in grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Before I get directly into our text, I have a couple things I want to say by way of encouragement. Um, Most of you who are members know that we just sort of rolled out uh, the new layout for our city groups, and um, some of you have been assigned different places to go, and we've now expanded from six city groups to eight. Praise God. We have eight groups, uh, and that's, if you're not sure what that is, that's basically what our small groups are. But guys, we have like a 90% attention or attendance of our small groups. That's not normal. That means 90... And I, and I praise God for that. God gets the glory for that. But that, it should be that way. It shouldn't be the, the abnormal thing that 90% of our church is regularly fellowshipping together outside of Sundays. So I, I want to just say by way of that, as we begin this coming Friday, you'll be in your new groups. I want to encourage all of you to go to your city groups and make it an absolute commitment from your family that everything else is down here we don't want to be the people who say, well, if I have nothing going on, I will attend Citigroup. We want to say to the world, hey, I've got something going on. I'll get back to you later about a different date. You say that to the, this is, this is what it means to commit to be the body of Christ. We commit to fellowship. We commit to, be, to each other. And another thing to say, you introverted people, we love you. We love you. Your, your leaders and the people at your city groups will be blessed when your mouth opens. <laughs> Woo, yes. <laughs> Guys, city groups are for that purpose, to talk and to discuss God's word and to pray together. Ask God this week, may this city group be the first one where I open my mouth and say something, even if you are scared out of your mind. You will grow. You will grow, you will be strengthened, you will encourage other people as God uses you. So be praying about that, commit to it, and, and let's, may these groups be so fruitful as we study God's word together and, become, and continue to become a family together. Amen? Amen. Speaking of family, we have a ministry that we've been talking about, Safe Families, and we have a video that we're going to show you really quick. And um, the, rea- the reality is, as we've been trying to get this going, we cannot become an official Safe Families church if we don't have more people signed up. So we're gonna, we have some people that have been signing up, but we need families that are actually host homes. We have others who have been counselors that are family friends and support, but we need people that are able to say, hey, our home is open for children that are in need in the state of Maine. So we've got a little video we're gonna show you, and then I'll come back and we'll get into the word. 
Awesome. So that was a great explanation of what Safe Families is. So if you have questions, um, so my wife Callie has a sign-up table in the back right in front of the sound booth, um, and you want to get involved, you want to know more, talk to her after the service, please go and see. If the Lord's tugging on your heart to be involved, we'd love to see more people signed up. Was that clear? Was the video very clear of what it is and what we're trying to do? Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right. All right, guys. Hope your Bibles are already open. Matthew chapter 5. We are talking about being salt and light today. Salt and light. There are, um, there are certain things that the church is simply meant to be. There are certain things that are the identity of the church. Things that it's, it's who we are because of Jesus Christ. And, and these identifying marks, they also serve as a litmus test as to whether we are genuine or fake, whether there, there is truth in our lives or deception. These identifying marks. So because Jesus is a teacher and the best teacher, I might add, he is perfect with illustrations. And to get this illustration across, he uses the perfect one. He utilizes what is common to everyday people in his day to relate truths about deep spiritual principles. And so that's what we see happening in the salt and the light. Christ is using elements of his culture to teach a truth. And this truth, as we hear it today, I hope, I pray, that one, it becomes a reality in our lives that this is the identifying mark of our lives as Christians, salt and light, but also that for some, it is a litmus test, and that if you're paying attention, if you're truly hearing, you will experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit that though it's supposed to be your identity, it's actually not. And so that's the litmus test. Am I living like this person who is in Christ Jesus? So lots of things to look at. And Jesus uses this great metaphor. The first metaphor for the church is that we are like salt. We are like salt. And here's what he says one more time. You are the salt of the earth. Verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Notice the direct nature in which he says it to his disciples. He says to the face of his disciples, remember that's the context of the Sermon on the Mount, is the disciples are listening and there's a larger crowd listening in. He says to them, you are the salt of the earth. Again, this is not a command. He didn't say to them or to us, hey, be the salt of the earth. He's saying that this is an identifying mark of the church. You are the salt of the earth. What salt does for us in modern day America is a little bit different for what salt did in this day, in this first century. For us in Maine, the analogy actually really falls apart. It'd be like saying, the church is to be blamed for rusting out all of your vehicles and staining your roads for six months out of the year. So it... You have to go back to first century. <laughs> You're like, what was it like to hear it in that day? Not as Mainers who hate salt. <laughs> for these people, and for thousands of years before them, a massive amount of history, if you do the research on salt, 
which I'm not going to go there. This isn't a history lesson on salt. But there is a lot of history. Thousands of years, salt was being used for preserving meat. You might have guessed that's one of the things. It was added to animal sacrifice. If you read in the Old Testament, often they were to add salt to the sacrifice. Oftentimes those sacrificial meats were to be consumed and to be eaten. It was symbolic of many other things, but there is a similarity that every generation can relate to. And it's, it's actually quite clear that this is the context that Jesus was pointing us to. This is what he wanted us to think about. Notice again what he said, quite simply, if the salt has lost its what? Taste. Its saltiness. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Jesus wants to think about the taste of salt. How it tastes, its saltiness, what it is known for. So kingdom people, true disciples, are like salt that has a distinct taste and flavor that can be savored. That's what it is to be the church, to be God's people. A true, per, a true disciple of Christ, a kingdom-minded person, is like salt that has a distinct taste, a distinctive about us, a flavor that can be savored. He calls the church the salt. And he makes a distinction between the salt and the earth. We notice that in the text. You are the salt of the earth. The earth isn't the salt. It is the Christians who are the salt. The earth is the earth. It's everyone else. It's all those who are outside of Christ looking at witnessing the kingdom, tasting the salt. There's a distinction there. The people of God and the world around us are meant to be different, distinct. Now, at the same time, the kingdom of God is meant to come in contact with the world. What good is salt for the earth if it never comes in contact with the earth? We see all of that here in what Jesus is plainly saying. There's a contrast between salt and earth, but there's also a necessity that the salt comes in contact with the earth. It must experience the saltiness of the church. We won't go too deep into that analogy as it just came out of my mouth. <laughs> the world can have a negative effect on the church. It can. But the order and the pronouncement of the king, Jesus, what he is saying is that the church must have a flavor and must be tasted. The earth has to be able to. The people of the world, those outside of Christ, those far from God, those that are in other religions or seeking other things must taste what it is to be a kingdom person, to be a person of Christ. Now, what is the flavor of salt? That's a mind-boggling one, right? What is the flavor of salt? Salt. <laughs> it's, it's salt. How, can you, how do you describe it? What does salt taste like? It's salty, you know? It's a little salty. Like, there's no other way. It's, it is what it is. It's known for flavor enhancement and bringing out the best flavors of everything else that it is added to. It's an amazing thing. So consider the analogy. When you taste something good, I'm not going to, this is probably going to distract you. I'm, I should not have done this. We're going to be thinking about food. Uh, 
when something tastes really good, <laughs> what is it that makes it good? What is that thing? And if you're thinking butter, <laughs> I'm also with you there. That's, that is an answer, but it's not the answer I'm looking for. It's because it's been seasoned perfectly. Have you ever had something seasoned perfectly? You just don't have to add anything. You're not like, where's the salt? Where's the... It's just, boom, it's right there. It's good. It's, it's, and that's why it is good, because it has been seasoned perfectly. Now, there is that rare kind of person that I have met that actually enjoys bland food. I've met them. Like, nah, nothing. Add nothing to this. I don't want it. And I don't relate to that very well. But there are... People like that. But for everyone else, when there's the perfect blend of seasoning, including salt, you can't beat it. So picture this for a moment. I'm going to just hang on this analogy to make this point. Picture a perfectly seasoned meal. We're just going to use something like a stew or something like that. You've got the meat and the vegetables and all the spices, and the perfect amount of salt is used. It's such a delight. It's so good to eat. No complaints. Everybody, including the kids, are eating it. Nobody's complaining. It's, it's really good. The salt is good, and the food is savored, and hearts are won. Hearts are won over to that. What can go wrong? Well, what could go wrong is someone could come along and start adding unwanted stuff to it. Too many vegetables. There is such thing as too many vegetables, right? There is. I mean, vegetables are good, but if you add too many, guess what you have to do? You got to add more salt. You follow the analogy? If you don't readjust the other things, too many vegetables can actually be a harm. Now, yeah, I get it. It's good for you. More vegetables. Get I get it. I get it. But you, you understand what I'm saying. If you just add more vegetables, too much meat, yeah, there's actually this thing as too much meat in one pot of stew. What happens? The salt is diluted. The salt will inevitably be diluted and eventually lose its flavor. You won't even be able to taste it. The salt itself, the mineral, will always remain what it is, sodium chloride, but it can lose its flavor. How? If it's mixed with other impurities, if it's oversaturated with other substances that are introduced to it. That's how salt loses its savor. That's how salt loses its flavor. So brothers and sisters, begin to hear, and hopefully you're beginning to hear what Jesus is saying and what the word of God is teaching. The church has, is to have a distinct flavor that others can taste. Your life is supposed to be distinct as a follower of Jesus that others can recognize and taste. But if you claim to be a Christian and you've added so much sin and worldliness to your life that you have now been diluted and the flavor of Christ is gone, then what good are you for the preserving and transforming of people's lives for the sake of the gospel? Things can get added to your life that you would say, these are good things. But nothing is as good or as important as the gospel or Christ himself or what comes from him. So that the, we're supposed to be salt for the earth, but we often dilute our lives. And maybe you're here and you have a diluted Christian life and nobody has ever perhaps tasted who Christ is through your life and your witness. 
Maybe it's been years. You can turn from that today. There's repentance there to say, God, I want to be used by you. I don't want to be deluded. I want to be as you have designed me to be. So the serious nature of this needs to be understood in the words of Jesus. If the salt has lost its taste, it is no longer good for anything. That's what Jesus has said. If it loses its taste, what is it good for? Don't say it. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Sorry, I had to do it. It's true, though, is it not? What what, 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 What good does it bring? What does he say? Except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What a disgrace. Not fruitful. So do you hear what he's saying? Salt is good until it's not anymore. And the one factor that makes salt good or not is whether we walk as kingdom people or act so much like the world that we look and have no distinct taste And it says to people, he's acting like a, or he says he's a believer, but he's not acting like a follower of Christ. Listen to how Luke records it. Another parallel gospel in the synoptics, Luke 14, 35. Luke says this. Jesus' words according to Luke, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. No good for a manure pile? So think about it like this. If we are true disciples of Christ, our faith in Christ will be experienced by those around us they will taste it's not for us to determine what one ultimately does with it when they taste when they see that's God's doing we can't determine whether they like the taste or not but they just must be tasting Christ the flavor of what Christianity is and save the savor of Christ in his people not diluted But if there's nothing to taste or you've diluted your faith with sin or compromise or disobedience or adding all sorts of other ingredients that should not be there, what good is that diluted and tasteless salt? So I just want to challenge you, us as a church, examine your heart. Diluted or salty? Can others taste Christ in you, see him upon you? Is there a distinctive nature to you as a believer, a follower, an ambassador of Christ? We need to think about that. He moves on to the second part of the analogy. Not only are Christians to have a distinct flavor and fragrance, the salt of grace in our words and in our actions, which you could go to countless places in the scripture to support this, that grace is the salt. Our speech seasoned with salt. What we say is incredibly important. But we're also supposed to be what? Not just a flavor to the world, but we're also supposed to be visible to the world. And so he moves on to the second part. You are the light of the world in verse 14. 
You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Once again, this is not a command to be the light. Notice that. So we're not going to turn this into a command. We are going to see this as Scripture says. This is who you are as a Christian. But again, it's also a litmus test, is it? If you're not the light of the world, being light, then we should be asking ourselves, are we walking with Christ? Kingdom people are the lights that Jesus has illuminated to be visible agents of grace in this dark world. It's his light. He lights us, illuminates us, makes us visible. That's his intention, that we would be visible agents of his grace in a dark world. Two metaphors are used to make this explanation. He says, a city on a hill and a lamp on a stand. Just to get us to think about how logical his teaching is and how illogical it is to do otherwise or to be otherwise. A city on a hill and a lamp on a stand. What does a city on a hill do? It gives light to the surrounding villages. That's one thing. It lights up the sky from a distance so that travelers see from afar and can come into its refuge. Think about this in old first century communication. What is Jesus saying to these people? A city on a hill was so spectacular, instrumental. We don't need cities to be on a hill anymore. We've got electricity. We just light them up. But a city on a hill, you could see it. It drew people in. It was spectacular. It was hope-filled. These are objective truths. When light is shining, it is seen. This is what light does. This is light's purpose. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Then he moves on. Nobody lights a lamp in order to put it under a basket. It gets set on a stand to give light to the whole house. What is the point? What is he saying? Jesus tells us, just like these lights, the city on a hill and the lamp on its stand, so are we to let our lights shine so that others can see. To not be hiding them. To not let them be lights under a basket. Notice this, though. How will people see the light of Christ that we're shining? And this is incredibly applicable. Hang on to these words, church. Think about this and apply, apply it to your life. How are they to see the light? There's a specific way. And Jesus tells us, we want to shine our lights. This is how. They will see our good works. They will see our good works. Now, if you say, well, I have good works. Well, guess what? Jesus actually, in his word, tells us what good works are. We don't get to just fill in the blank. We now, because of God's word, we know what he means by good works by going to other places in scripture. So I want to give you four things. What are good works, according to scripture, that would then shine so that others might glorify our Father in heaven? Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So one thing we know about good works is that good works are prepared in advance by God. 
That's one way to start defining it. They are prepared beforehand by God. Secondly, Colossians 1, 9, and 10 says, And so from that day, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to, to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So according to Colossians, the Lord is worthy of good works and they are pleasing to him. Good works that are according to Christ, well, the Lord is worthy of them and the Lord is pleased by our good works. Thirdly, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, does a very familiar passage. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So thirdly, what is a good work according to God's word? The man or woman that is trained in the scriptures is being equipped for good works. Starting to get a rounded view now of what good works actually are. And then lastly, and then I'll recap each one so we have them. James 2, 20 through 24. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from the works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So fourthly, please hear this. This is a very important one to not get messed up. In the context of James is telling us God's or good works are the justification of saving faith. Saving faith that already existed, that already is there, is justified by good works. Faith without works is dead. Good works are absolutely necessary. So to recap these again. Good works are prepared and advanced by God. The Lord is worthy of our good works and they are pleasing to him. The man or woman that is trained in the scriptures is being equipped for good works. And lastly, good works are the justification of a person's saving faith. Faith without works is dead. So we put all these together and we see that good works are more than just doing good things. When we think about this scripture, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven is not a blank check to say, as long as I do something good according to me or according to the world or according to some social standard, that's not what's being said. Helping someone to cross the road is wonderful. Serving at the soup kitchen is wonderful. But these are works that anyone can do. Anyone can do. You don't have to be a Christian to serve at the soup kitchen. Anyone can help an old lady across the street. Why, why we always help old ladies? There's other people that need help across the street too, but we always go to the old ladies. Okay? We, it's, good, it's good stuff. But it is not what Jesus is talking about necessarily. Clearly, there is a distinction between the works of a born-again, heaven-bound, sin-forgiven disciple of Jesus Christ. There has to be. If our works that are good look just like anyone, any other charity, why would they glorify the Father in heaven? 
What transformation, what redemptive quality is there about our good works? Well, clearly it's something because Jesus said, they will see your good works and they, they give glory to God the Father. There's got to be something distinct about it. And there is something distinct. When Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, he's connected the works that the world sees and a world that gives glory to the Father. He's talking about a redemptive work. The world sees the works of a Christian and there's something about it that redemption takes place. That a person gives glory. Just so you know, when somebody thanks you, they're not giving glory to the Father in heaven. What do we want to see as kingdom people? We want to see people turn to the king. We want to see people give glory to the Father who is in heaven through Jesus Christ, his son. So that our works are so distinct and that our light shines in such a way that the gospel is present, that the kingdom is clear, that who we serve is evident. That in some way, somehow, by God's providence and his grace, that there is redemption that takes place and salvation happens through the witness of the church because we are truly being salt and light. And they glorify our Father in heaven. That's speaking of salvation, I believe. Now, somebody may take a different path on that. That's fine. That's fine. I really believe that this is speaking of a salvific work. So letting your, sh- your light shine before others is not just a happy person. <laughs> I understand in our world, we want to say things like, sometimes all people need to do all people need is to see you smile. Like, smiling is great. Please, smile more. Don't be Christians that just, you're just in the drudges all the time. Like, we need, that. we need to be joyful. But I'm telling you, the gospel is not smile at people more. That's not the gospel. Right? So people don't just need more smiles. It's not, that's, not, that's not what's happening. Letting our light shining before others is not just hugging people. You might be a hugger. Like, I'm just letting my light shine before the, before the world. And I'm hugging people. They don't know who that's from. How would they glorify the Father in heaven for your hug? I might, I mean, I, I, I'll take a hug. That's good. But you guys hear what I'm saying? I'm joking a little bit to just try to keep your spirits up, but it has to be gospel, biblical, The light of Jesus Christ in us is distinct and visible. It's more than just even benevolence in general. You can give away money. You can pull someone out of debt. You can do all these things. And they still won't glorify our Father in heaven. Because it's not our light that we're shining. It's Christ's. That's the distinction. It's all that Christ has illuminated in us by his grace. It's the work of redemption. It's forgiveness. Think back to the Beatitudes, just a few verses earlier. What is it? It's mercy. It's the comfort of the gospel. It's the patience of faith, the generosity of grace. It's the meekness and gentleness of a changed life that comes into somebody and into their life, and you show them Jesus by your meekness, and you tell them the gospel. You bring them Jesus. Even that last beatitude, the rejoicing and gladness of a persecuted Christian for righteousness' sake is the light of Christ. That is that not a light of the world that would show the glory of Christ? To be a witness, to be persecuted, 
and continue to be patient and serve him. Others will see your good works and may they glorify the Father in heaven. All of these are works that others need to see in us. And oh, that when they do see those works, we take no glory for ourselves but point all to the Father. That's another problem. Is oftentimes we do like taking the glory for ourselves. So when we are shining our light and when we are being the salt of the earth, it's also extremely important that we are pointing people to Christ. That we are saying all glory to God for any work that he's done in me and through me. Take no glory for yourselves. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 I'll give you a second to turn there if you've got your Bibles. Hopefully you do. You got them by now. If I see you take it out of your purse now, that's like weird. <laughs> oh, we needed those? <laughs> First Peter 4, 9. I, I definitely want your eyes to see this one. Verses 9 through 11. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that, notice what this sounds like, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. What's interesting, if you were to read Peter and then just keep the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in mind, you start to see that Peter was really listening. So much of the evidence of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes are evident in the writings of Peter. So just keep your eyes open and notice it. And then just say, oh, how awesome. How awesome that this all just comes together. But you see that the dominion belongs to him. It is his And so we want to come alongside as partners with God, with Christ in the gospel, as ambassadors of Jesus, pointing people to his glory through our works and through our serving. So there's some things that we can conclude from these two great metaphors for the church, that we are salt and that we are light. There are professing believers, please hear me, there are professing believers, perhaps in this room, perhaps fairly apathetic, potentially, who lose their saltiness and are no longer having an effect on this world for Christ. That is heartbreaking. It is tragic, it is sad, and it is unnecessary. It is unnecessary to claim the Christian life And to not seek with all of your heart and all of your life to be what Christ has created us to be. To lose your saltiness, to no longer have an effect on this world for Christ. So I would ask you, examine your heart. Is this you? Is this you? Don't dodge it. He almost got me. No, is this you? Because there's so much grace just on the other side of this. 
If this is you, and there is repentance, true remorse and turning from this sin and apathy, and you begin to say to God, God, use me. I'm done being a saltless person who has been so deluded and contaminated with other things of this world. I want to be a, I want to be a witness for you. Help me. He will help you. He will fill you with his spirit, and a church like ours will come around you and to keep you accountable to that end, that you would be a witness for Christ. Maybe you're extremely discouraged, and you say, well, I've gone way too long. Man, it is not too late. It's not too late. Right now, it's not. But I really do believe it's a witness, it's a litmus test. Don't, don't push the limits of God's grace. Don't do that. Receive his grace and let it change you. Don't be okay with that if that is you. To become effective again, you need only to turn to him this morning with a heart full of repentance. Ask him to give you a life again that is distinct from the world. And stop diluting your life with worldly things. If you're in Christ, then you are the salt of the earth. So let's be that. Amen, church? Likewise, there are professing believers who are hiding their light under a basket. There are professing believers potentially in this room who are hiding their light under a basket. And when you have now learned and heard what it is to show the light, it is by good works that God has foreordained. It is good works that God has given you from his word. So if you say, well, I'm doing good things, but then you say, but I'm not in his word, whose good works are they, yours or his? What good works are truly going to glorify the Father in heaven? It is the works that point people to Jesus. It is the works that are foreordained by him, that come from his word, that are inspired by him as we are instructed in his scriptures. So let's be that. But there are, there are some who are hiding their basket, or excuse me, well, anyway, hiding the light under the basket. Maybe you're even going further. You're putting multiple baskets on it. You're like, I don't want anyone to see even a glimmer of this light. I just want to be a secret Christian. You know that there are people that actually have to be secret Christians? Can I just say that for a moment and just, if that weighs heavy on you, it should. There are people that actually have to be secret Christians. You ever heard of the secret church before? The underground church. That the moment they give their life to Christ, they have to be careful that they will not lose their life. Their family members will disown them. You guys, we live in America. I know it's bad, but... Do you know what's happening in this room? And there's nobody is harming us. You can go home to your house and you can glorify God. You can lead your family and point them to Jesus and nobody is stopping you except you. Let's not do that. Some of us are just unwilling to let the whole room see the light. Jesus said that the light goes on the lampstand in the corner of the room so that the whole room sees the light. Stop trying to limit that. This is truly foolish behavior considering the fact that light is meant to be seen. Not one of you goes into your house, turns the light on, and then covers it. It's really foolish. If you invite me over and I see that, and I'll be like, huh, maybe, they, maybe that is normal. I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something. So brothers and sisters, with a world full of darkness, we need all hands on deck. 
every single one of you, all of us, everyone who professes the name of Jesus, to be salt and light. All Christians lighting the world with Jesus' love and his grace and the clear message of the gospel and who we truly represent, showing who it is who is worthy of glory and honor, and it is Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see that with Peter speaking more and more about this? that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Some of you have already had that day of visitation. Christ has already visited you. The Spirit of God has already come into your life. And you know what? He wants to use you so that through you and through your works and through your message that others would come to that place, that day of visitation. When the Holy Spirit visits a person and changes them, completely alters their life through faith in Jesus. I want to see that. Don't you? You sound very convincing. I know how it is to be in the room. I know how it is. I know. I'm not trying to pressure you. I'm not like that. You know, I can't hear you. No, I don't want that. (laughs) I just, I mean it. Like, this is, this is serious. It's so good, too. The gospel is so good. So good. How, why would we want to hold it back? And it's going to happen in different ways for each of us. We're all different. Different opportunities, different people that we can affect. Go from here today expecting God to use you as you are the salt and light of this earth. Expect that he will use you. Take all of these things to heart. Hide them deep in your heart. Ask God to encourage you and strengthen you. And if there's any sin, if there's any apathy, if there is a covering of the light or you have been diluted by other things and now there is no flavor to you, you need to repent. You need to turn. And trust in Christ that if you did all of those things, though there may be turmoil for a while, your family may hate you for it, your coworkers may come against you, There will be an attack from the enemy. Yes, there will be spiritual warfare. But Christ is eternal life. And forgiveness of sins is ours through Jesus. And you cannot beat that. And it's not about our glory anyway. It's all about his. If you're here in this room today and and you have not yet turned and bent the knee and bowed before Jesus with him as Lord. Do that today. No more faking it. No more pretending. And if you're here, it's because God is drawing you here. You are here by the invitation of a person, but that person was a vessel of a holy God who has been pursuing your life. And he loves you intensely, and he showed you that through his son Jesus. Turn to him for forgiveness of sins. Become his disciple. Not one foot in the world and one foot in the church. All in for Jesus Christ. Being the salt and being the light. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this occasion. On this beautiful day, on this Mother's Day, we do celebrate moms, but we also know that it is most important that we celebrate you, our Father. 
our good and gracious heavenly father. You are above all things. You know all things. And you knew what we needed today. You knew that we needed to hear this word about what our life is supposed to be. We are to be the savor of Christ for this world. And I pray that if there's any among us that have lost the saltiness because of sin, by your grace, draw us to repentance. Draw that individual, that man or that woman or that teenager, whoever it is. Bring them into your loving arms of grace and mercy. But Lord, may they see the severity of the situation. If we are salt that has lost its flavor, what good, what good are we but to be trampled underfoot by people? And we don't want that to be our state. So Lord, have mercy on your church. Turn us all, all of us, eyes towards Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King. Thank you so much for your love, for your cross, for your blood shed for us, for rising from the dead, being victorious over sin and death and Satan himself, defeated and crushed. And though this world is hard to live in and there is true, real pain and trial, eternity is ours if we turn to Christ. Help us to be light, the light of the world, as you've called us to be, as you've told us we are. Show us what that looks like. Not to just waste our time with worldly works, but works that are derived from a changed life, a life that is surrendered to the word of God, a life that is surrendered and committed to obedience to Jesus, obedience to the commands of Scripture. Help us, Lord. For we are weak, and we need you. We need your spirit, Lord. So, Lord, speak to this church, and help us now, Lord, as we just turn and remember our Lord Jesus and his death through, com- through communion. Help us to now respond the way you'd have us to. And we give you all of the glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the New City Church podcast. For more content from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at www.bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next episode.